absolutely lovely hearing you give praise to the Lord this morning. From glorious things of thee are spoken to before the throne of God above. You catch a theme undoubtedly in this service already with regards to intercession, just as we talked about in uh, Confession of Sin this morning, the theme of the priesthood. Um, priests of the living God is really our focus today from the selected text of Scripture that is before us. And would you just take a moment here on page 8 and just bask in the glory of these references up here at the top of page 8. Notice three chapters, Exodus chapter 28, Exodus chapter 29, and yes, you guessed it, Exodus chapter 30 uh, this morning. Now, I cannot remember the last time I preached on three chapters of Scripture at, uh, at one time. This is a bit of an experiment. I, I think this morning you're the guinea pigs uh, in this as we seek to address the three chapters in Exodus that speak directly to the subject of the, the priesthood. Now, I know when you see this, this, look at this, this wall of words that are here, and then you turn over on the back on page 9. No, you're not done if you haven't turned to page 9. No, no, no. You have half a page on page 9. I know for some of you, as you look over this, you, um, you think to yourself, now, he, he preaches normally about 35-ish minutes over small sections of Scripture, um, by, if he does a similar thing here, um, we're going to miss the Titans game, right? That's some of you, are, you know some of you are thinking that. Um, some of you are thinking you're going to miss Sunday's lunch. You might miss Sunday's dinner. You, 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 might, miss, you might miss supper. I, but I want you not to be fearful because I calculated it. I, if... We give faithful treatment to all three chapters. I think I can get it done in an hour and 45 minutes. <laughs> Lindsay really thought that was funny. She was laughing. She thought that's really funny. No, I'm going to do my best uh, to treat this subject in these three chapters around the theme of the priesthood. Because they all deal with the priesthood and at a variety of levels and at a variety of, of, of depths. And so even before we... Uh, read uh, this text. I want to I want to briefly outline it uh, for you so that you can have a placeholder in your mind on it. Uh, Exodus chapter twenty eight really deals with what we're going to call today the priest's clothes, uh, his arraignment, his his garment, uh, the clothes that he wears. Um, Exodus twenty nine uh, really deals with the priest's consecration. Um, how he is ordained into the office of priest and the process that he undergoes in that. And then chapter 30, uh, and the end of 29, and in chapter 30, we deal with the priest's calling. Um, where what will he really give his time and energy to? What will his daily job look like? What are its tasks? What's he given to? Now you can see in those three chapters, I very helpfully... I've given you three C's to be able to hold in your memory what these three chapters are about. 28, the priest's clothes. 29, the priest's consecration. And 30, the priest's calling. Now, by the end of our time, we're actually going to talk about Christ. Yes, another C. Uh, number four, our high priest. And we'll actually finish with the church. You heard that right. Number five that we are a priesthood of all believers. You know, you go to seminary for these things, my friends. This is how, this is what you get when you go to seminary. You get five C's this morning. Now, as we look at this text together, I just want to also note that um, there's lots of details here. There are going to be times as we work our way through this text that you're going to say to yourself, what in the world is going on? What does this have to do with anything? Hold that thought inside. Don't speak it out loud. Um, as we work our way through the text this morning, I think you'll see that it has, um, every bit of it has a lot to do with everything that's important in your life and in my life related both to our walk of faith and to our followership of Jesus Christ 
specifically. So with that in mind, just as an introduction, let's look together at Exodus 28 through 30. This is God's Word. Then bring near to you, this is God speaking to Moses, then bring near to you Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests, Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron and your brother for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with a spirit of skill that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments that they shall make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checker work, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother and his sons to serve me as priests. They shall receive gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen." You shall put them on Aaron your brother and on his sons with him and shall anoint them and, adorn, and ordain them and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. You shall make for them linen undergarments to cover their naked flesh. They shall reach from the hips to the thighs and they shall be on Aaron and on his sons when they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister in the holy place lest they bear guilt and die. This shall be a statute forever for him and for his offspring after him. Now this is what you shall do to them to consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. Take one bull of the herd and two rams without blemish, and unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers smeared with oil. You shall make them a fine wheat flour. You shall put them in one basket and bring them in the basket, and bring the bull and the two rams." You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Then you shall take the garments and put on Aaron the coat and the robe of the ephod and the ephod and the breastpiece and the gird him with skillfully woven band of the ephod. You shall set the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. You shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. Then you shall bring his sons and put coats on them, and they shall gird Aaron and his sons with sashes and bind caps on them, and the priesthood shall be theirs by a statute forever. Thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. Thus you shall do to Aaron and to his sons according to all that I have commanded you. Through seven days you shall ordain them, and every day you shall offer a bull as a sin offering for atonement. Also, you shall purify the altar when you make atonement for it, and shall anoint it to consecrate it. Seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and consecrate it, and the altar shall be most holy. Whatever touches the altar shall become holy. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. They shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. You shall make an altar on which to burn incense. You shall make it of acacia wood. A cubit shall be its length and a cubit its breadth. It shall be square and two cubits shall be its height. Its horns shall be of one piece with it. You shall overlay it with pure gold, its top and around in size and its horns. And you shall make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make two golden rings for it under its molding on two opposite sides of it. You shall make them and they shall be holders for poles with which to carry it. And you shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put it in front of the veil that is above the ark of the testimony. In front of the mercy seat that is above the testimony where I will meet with you. And Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. Every morning when he dresses the lamps, he shall burn it. And when Aaron sets the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it. A regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. You shall not offer unauthorized incense on it or a burnt offering or a grain offering. And you shall not pour a drink offering on it. Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year with the blood of the sin offering of atonement. He shall make atonement for it. 
once in the year throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, You shall also make a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it, with which Aaron and his son shall wash their hands and their feet. When they go into the tent of meeting, or when they come near the altar to minister, to burn a wood offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water, so that they may not die. They shall wash their hands and their feet, so that they may not die. It shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his offspring throughout their generations. The Lord said to Moses, Take the finest spices of liquid myrrh, 500 shekels, and of sweet-smelling cinnamon, half as much, that is 250, and 250 of aromatic aromatic, uh, cane, and 500 of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hen of olive oil. And you shall make of these a sacred anointing oil, blended as by the perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. With it you shall anoint the tent of meeting, and the ark, and the altar of burnt offering, with all its utensils, and the basin, and its stand. You shall consecrate them, that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them will become holy. You shall anoint Aaron and his sons, and consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. And you shall say to the people of Israel, This shall be my holy anointing oil throughout your generations. It shall not be poured on the body of an ordinary person, and you shall make no other like it in composition. It is holy, and it shall be holy to you. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Indeed, we believe that, O Father, that even all the details that we just read about the garmentry of the priest and the process of sacrifice and uh, his consecration and the details regarding the altar of gold and his uh, work of sacrificing and all of the attending details here in Exodus 28 through 30, we believe this is your word. We believe that it's given to your people um, as a unwavering, wholly trustworthy account of what you would have them know. That you are speaking to us purely and clearly from your word in areas that we admit to you, Lord, are not immediately accessible to our minds and our hearts. We need your help to see the purpose behind them. So would you come now by the Holy Spirit? We are completely dependent upon Him to make this Word live in our life and our heart today. Come and let Him be the true preacher of the Word today, penetrating all of our hearts and revealing to us the richness of what you have shared and the beauty of, yes, our great High Priest, even Christ Jesus Himself. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I mentioned, as we were speaking for a few moments, even before the reading of the text, we're going to take this section systematically from chapter 28, 29, and 30. We're going to look at it not in the fullness of a scope, but around the theme of the priesthood. And we're going to try to do it in focusing on the very particular parts of this narrative that tell us most significantly why the priesthood is important and then why it is significant for you and I to understand it, believe it, and trace its importance all the way to Christ and, yes, even to our lives as the church. And to do that, we want to start with these uh, clothes because, well, these are some clothes that are given to the priest, some significant arraignment that he is He is instructed in from the Lord, given first to Moses, as was repeated several times for Aaron and his sons. They are a part of the tribe of Levi, that is the tribe of uh, the priesthood in the Old Testament. And part of the reason that God spends so much time instructing around the clothes of the priests and why the clothes of the priests are important is because 
Well, the job of the priest and the office of the priest is arguably the most important job and most important office in all of Israel. And we all know that you have to, well, how do we say it? Uh, dress for success. Uh, that, that you have to wear the clothes appropriate to the role that the Lord has given to you. And it is important for the priest especially to be properly dressed. Now, we just need to make this note because it's, it's important for the unfolding of Scripture, and that is that God has been known to um, be very uh, particular about um, our dress. Um, he, he does this several places in the Scripture, but maybe, maybe most notably that, um, uh, well, right back at the very beginning of the Bible, right? He's very interested in, in clothes. You'll, you'll remember in the Garden of, of Eden when Adam and Eve decide that, they're going to strike out on their own. They're going to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because the serpent had told them good things would happen when they did so, and they found out that that was a lie. And immediately bad things, many bad things happened. And, and one of the most obvious bad things that the text gives us in Genesis chapter 3 is the fact that they discovered that they were naked. And the point of that discovery of their nakedness is to acknowledge the reality of guilt, and especially in that context of shame. Adam and Eve experienced it immediately, and they, what was the instinct that rose up in Adam and Eve as soon as they experienced the reality of shame, and that was to go get some clothes on. And what did they do? They went and they grabbed some, well, a, a needle, because you, you know there were needles back then, and there were needles and there was yarn, and they, and they stitched together um, those fig leaves and they made themselves, I'm sure it was a wonderful, it was a beautiful little skirt of some sort that they were, they were wearing, and, and they went and hid from the presence of, of the Lord because of it. And, and then the Lord came walking in the cool of the day in the garden and they they confessed to him that they went and hid from the presence of the Lord. That's the actual language of the text. Because they realized that they were naked. And what did God do? Well, shall we, let me put it this way. God became a priest. The first priest of the Bible was God himself. He sacrificed an animal. The first bloodshed that ever happened in the pages of Scripture, was not Cain and Abel. The first human bloodshed was Cain and Abel, but the first bloodshed was from the hands of our priestly God who used the animal skins to appropriately cover Adam and Eve and their nakedness. Now, why did God become a priest and sacrifice to cover the shame of Adam and Eve because, well, that's the story of actually the rest of the Bible. The story of a need for bloodshed to cover our shame that we might be once again in the presence of the Lord. You see, that's the whole of the story of the priesthood. And God shows that by His modeling on the earliest pages. And so, I just want to warn you, God cares about clothing. Uh, he cares about dress. He acknowledges here in Genesis 3 and now again with the priesthood that he wants to see a very particular expression of dress, especially by those who desire to be in the presence of the Lord. And we're told here in Exodus 28 that there are several items that the priest is commanded to wear. Notice these items, a breastplate, an ephod, a robe, a turban, and a sash. Now, now, each of these items are in, in, intended to uh, speak of the role of, of the priest. And I want to take just a minute, we only have a minute, to, to run through the pieces of the garment of the priest so that you can see their in, importance. I want to start with this ephod. It was, a, it was literally a linen apron of sorts. That's what you would connect it with. It fell down the front and the back with a little head spot that went over the head of the priest um, with beautiful gold, blue, purple, and scarlet threads, which meant that it actually matched the curtains that surrounded uh, the tabernacle. Um, then on top of it was the breastplate, which is uh, a square piece of linen held in place by small golden straps with, with hooks around it, with three rows of, of, uh, of, 
of four stones, uh, each which had the names of the 12 tribes of Israel on them. And so it, it was as if the priest carried the whole nation of Israel on his chest into the presence of the Lord. And also the Urim and the Thummim, those two mysterious stones that were given uh, to the priests that sometimes were used to determine or divine God's will were also included on the breastplate. And you'll, you'll notice underneath that breastplate there was a, a robe, a robe that was of blue and purple linen, which means that it was well, very closely in color to that, that veil that, that was between the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place. As the, as the priest would go in, they matched, as it were, the inside of the tabernacle and that veil. We see that the Lord also prescribed underneath uh, that robe um, undergarments. It was not traditional, actually, at the time for there to be undergarments. And yet God here divinely prescribes and only here prescribes uh, undergarments. And notice how it is actually said. It's meant to allude to something. That they will wear these undergarments for, so that their nakedness will in no way be seen. The goal was for modesty. Why would their nakedness not want to be seen? Well, we go back to the beginning of the Bible where we were a minute ago in Genesis chapter 3. The nakedness is often an expression of shame. God, to be in the presence of the Lord, we need to be covered. We need to be clothed. Originally, Adam and Eve with the glory of God. Next, with animal skins, hear the priests as they go into the tabernacle. They have these linen undergarments to be sure that they are modest in the presence of the Lord. And then there's the sash that is tied around the waist because you've got a number of layers. You've got lots of stuff going on. You, you need to make sure that it's kept in place and the sash orders it and keeps it tight. And then, and then held up on top of the head is this turban. Turban made of linen that at the crown of, of the turban was a gold band that went around it and engraved on the gold band were the words, Holy to the Lord. Uh, this was an arraignment of the priests. Notice how elaborate it is. Notice the detail. Notice the fine linen, the, the gold. Uh, notice the beauty that's meant to be evoked. Um, that this glorious arraignment is meant to in some ways mirror the glory of that internal holy of holies and that holy place in the tabernacle. It's meant to resemble the character of the one in which you are meeting. Something of who you are should be reflected upon the one in whom you are meeting. Now, what's quite remarkable about this is that uh, well, we've, we've sort of pulled the thread through in our own cultural um, expressions throughout the centuries of acknowledging that when you go to a special occasion, when you go meet someone powerful and of uh, esteemed quality, someone of, someone of high-ranking office, that um, it's expected that you will dress suitably. You, you will dress that matches the occasion and the company of the people that you're with. Likely your, your parents in some way, shape, or form have, have sought to train you in, in that regard. That if you show up at a black tie event that you don't end up in, in sweats. There, that, that would be out of accord with the event and even the nature. And if you're going to meet uh, the president of the United States, you, you should not do what happened a few years ago. You remember it? Early 2000s, Northwestern University lacrosse team, female lacrosse team, invited by George W. Bush to the White House. The whole team comes, it's a marvelous time getting to know the president right outside the Oval Office. A picture is taken and as the picture is released, um, all kinds of reports begin to show up on NBC and CBS and Fox and all of these varieties of places are picking up and there's comments about, well, these, these ladies, there they are, they're well, they're properly dressed, they have their blouse, they have their, their skirt, they, they look nice. And then if you look at the feet, you look at the feet of four of the young ladies on the front row and they, well, they have, they have flip-flops on. I mean like beach flip-flops, like $16 Walmart beach flip-flops and they're walking around in the Oval 
office with these flip-flops. And, and it's just talked about all online, the, the fear of every woman's life, that their dress would be talked about publicly online, happened for these women. And interviews for some of the moms actually took place. One mom who was interviewed about the flip-flops, she said, don't ask me about the flip-flops. I saw it. I was mortified. <laughs> right? Something of that appropriateness of the moment and of the person in whom one is meeting is a thread that's been pulled through just about every ancient culture, even in the casual context of North America. We've got at least a shred of this that still uh, remains. There's something here in the priestly garb that evokes those very realities of being in the presence of God, what it should look like, how one should arraign themselves to get close to Him, what should be the communication of those clothes and the sense of holiness around them. In fact, as we were reading through, didn't you in some sense feel and sense that these clothes were, well, otherworldly? Something almost from, well, let's say, heaven itself, because they are fitting the task of a man who is called the high priest to constantly traipse in and out of heaven and earth, a man who's always on the divine errands, following in the care of the service of God's people, seeking to honor and glorify God in exactly the way that he's prescribed. Now, these clothes were intended to evoke not only the presence of the person in which you're in, but also the calling. In one sense, these clothes are a uniform. They're what it is that you would wear to work. But the work of this man, and his clothes appropriately so, speak of a task that no one else on planet earth is welcome to do. He alone has been set apart as a man consecrated unto the Lord with the clothes of the priesthood. You know, scholars even know when it comes to the clothes here, there's something of what the language that we, we've used throughout the centuries. We see this even a little bit with, uh, even in the medicine profession, when you get, well, when you get your white coat. And depending on the length of a coat, depending on how great of a doctor you are and how significant of a doctor you are, this, this sense of investiture, that by getting the vestments, by getting the clothes... In some sense, the role is completed. It is fit. Something is accomplished. Pastors feel this way a little bit when they get that, well, you know, that robe, that Genevan gown of some sort, that now you have become an ordained minister of the gospel. It's very often a gift, a gift that would come from the church that called or a gift that came from someone who lovingly cared you through the whole of the process of ordination. Something of that investiture is here in the priest's clothes. And yet as important as these clothes are, they aren't the whole kid and caboodle of what it means to be a priest. They're just the beginning. We see secondly here in chapter 29 that the priests have to be consecrated. They have to be consecrated. Notice those opening lines. Now this is what you shall do to them to consecrate them. Now, now, when you hear that word, consecrate, you think, well, I just haven't used that word in a while. I'm not even sure what to do with it. But it's a fine, wonderful, biblical word, a word that literally means to set apart something unto holiness, to be used for a holy purpose. Actually, in the text, if you were, I'm sure you didn't get lost as we were reading the text, but you, you might if you did get lost, just as a reminder, um, you actually can consecrate things. Like some of the utensils were consecrated. Did you notice the altar has to be consecrated? So it doesn't have to be a person. It can be things. But when it came to the Levites, those who would serve as priests, the men themselves had to be consecrated. And it was quite, it was quite an elaborate um, ceremonial uh, process of consecration. Now this is true pretty much in any ordination process. Now it doesn't look like this, of course, for... Well, Presbyterian Church in America ministers, but there is a, there is a process for ordination. There are things like education. There's, there's a testing. 
Uh, there's ultimately a, a, um, uh, an approval by a presbytery that lays hands on you at a worship service where vows are given and, and a man is installed into the work of, of ministry. And it's, a, it's an important part of the life of that man, of course, but even in the life of the congregation in whom he is called uh, to serve. Well, there's something of that, though... We look here in the elaborateness of the consecration and ordination service of the priest, and we see, oh, this is really different. There's something more and, and, and complex about the nature of this consecration. Notice four elements. The priest had to be washed with water at the entrance of the tabernacle, symbolizing that this man, a sinner, needs to be cleansed before he can begin in earnest the work that the Lord has called him to as a priest. After washing, he's to dress. He can put on the clothes. You never put on the clothes before you wash, right? Well, we know that just for, well, hygiene reasons. Mama taught us that. But the Bible teaches us here that for symbolism, that the body must be clean as these garments are put on. And then after the dressing, there is, well, the anointing of oil. And did you notice it was a, it was a special oil? It was not to be used on any ordinary person. It had a recipe to it, symbolizing that you would be set apart into a unique calling in service as a priest. And finally, there was a seven-day cycle of sacrifices. Can you imagine it? A whole week of sacrifices where an unblemished bull and two rams were a vital part of the sacrificial cycle of consecration and ordination. Now, I want to tell you briefly about these sacrifices because they do tell a story, an important part of the story of consecration. So if you'll bear with me, I'll tell you just a few pieces about them. The, the one is the bull. This unblemished bull is, is one type of offering in the Old Testament, one type of sacrifice. It's called a sin offering or a sin sacrifice. And it's the first one of the mix because we've got to deal with the sin first of the priest. The, the priests would be gathered around and their hands would be placed on the head of the bull. And then the bull would be slaughtered and killed. And its blood would be taken and it would be applied to the horns of the altar. And the rest of the blood would be applied to the altar and thrown against its side. As if to symbolize the substitution of the bull. That the priest who has sin transfers his sin to the bull. The bull is slaughtered on the behalf of the priest who would be killed if he went into the presence of the Lord. And then the things that the priest is going to touch, like the altar, would be unclean if the altar is not touched with the blood of the sacrifice. And now everything that is placed upon that altar, we're told, will be holy because of the atonement that's given through the sin offering of the bull. And this blood would then lead way to a second sacrifice. A sacrifice that in similar fashion, the priests would place their head now, not on a bull, but a ram. A sacrifice known as the burnt offering. Uh, this sacrifice, uh, its blood would also be taken and put on the altar. And, the, and then the ram itself uh, would be placed on the altar. And the whole thing would be burnt up. No part of the, of the ram would be left. And it's meant to symbolize that now that you're cleansed, the whole of your life is to be dedicated unto the Lord. You are a priest that will exist in such a way that your dedication will be likened to this ram, completely consumed in the service of the Lord. But then thirdly, there was this priestly ordination offering, this second ram that was given and this ram, when it was killed, its blood did not go straight to the altar after the priests had laid their hands on it. No, this blood was actually placed on the right ear of the priest himself and dabbed on the right hand of the priest and then also on the right big toe of the priest. As if to say, from head to toe, you will be covered with the blood of that ram. You are one who will hear the word of God through the blood of sacrifice. You are one who will handle the sacrifices with your hands with the blood of this ram. You're one who will walk between heaven and earth being, being touched 
from head to toe with this blood. You as a priest are holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy, H-O-L-Y. You're to be holy, holy unto the Lord. No part of you held back from service to the Lord or in the care of God's people. At the end of this elaborate consecration, food from that last realm would be cut out, different portions for the priests. They would wave them before the Lord as a gift of thanksgiving, and they would sit down to a meal and enjoy the food of the ram, bringing along those unleavened cakes that had been already baked, and they would fellowship in the sight of the presence of the Lord. You can see the elaborateness of the consecration. You can see the intentionality of the call And it tells you that the Lord is taking serious what it is that He is doing when He calls these men into the work of priest. You see the close, you see the consecration. Well, we've got to talk briefly about the calling. So what does the priest actually do now? That all of this ritual has happened, all this blood is everywhere, completely saturated. What a mess this is. Well, what's he going to do for the rest of his life? He's going to, in one sense, continue to deal with the blood that has now dealt with him. The blood that made him a priest is now going to be the blood that he handles as the care of a priest on the behalf of all of the people of Israel. We read in our reading that every day in the presence of the Lord, in the very early light of the morning, the priest will sacrifice a lamb. And will pour out a drink offering and a grain offering at the altar. And every night will at twilight sacrifice a lamb. And will pour out a grain offering and a drink offering to the Lord. And after he does the burnt offering in the morning of the lamb. He'll go immediately into the tabernacle. And what will he do? Well, he will light the lamps, we're told. And he will burn the incense. What is the incense on that altar of gold that we talked about? Well, it's a picture of the sign of the prayers of God's people. And after he burns the burnt offering in the evening, he'll go back into the holy place and he'll burn once again the incense as it wafts up right in front of the Holy of Holies, right into the presence of the Lord. This will be morning and night, the liturgy, the pattern, the rhythm of the life of the priest. And throughout the day, what will he be doing? Oh, twiddling his thumbs, probably. He'll be serving God's people. As tribe by tribe will come with a variety of sacrifices. One will come because, well, she had a baby. And now, according to Levitical laws, is unclean and needs a sacrifice. One will have an ungodly discharge. And will bring the appropriate sacrifice. And the priest will help them throughout the day to be sure that their needs are met in order for their discharge and their uncleanness to be be covered. Some will come because a joyous occasion happened and there's a thank offering to offer to the Lord. And so all day long, he's running between the altar and the animals in the holy place in the glorious calling of the drama of redemption, meeting the needs of a people who are shamed, shall we say, in the nakedness that their sin has brought, that they are broken and need a covering, a covering of blood, a covering of redemption, something that will make them be able to be right with the Lord and in His presence. What a glorious calling this is, isn't it? What an amazing calling that the priests had to stand as mediators between God and and man. But friends, listen, what a gruesome and grueling calling this is. These, These were men who day in and day out were slaughtering animals and were elbow deep in in blood and were reeking of the stench of the smoke of the altar. That's who these men were. Those beautiful clothes we were talking about. Can you imagine what they looked like at the end of the day? Can you imagine what the the richness of those clothes now spattered with blood? In fact, a part of the consecration really, wasn't it? Part of the consecration even after the blood went on the ear. 
and on the thumb and on the toe was that it was sprinkled over the whole of the priest so that his clothes were never unstained with the blood of sacrifice. It's a remarkable calling, isn't it? It's a calling full of mediation. A calling that at every point was working between heaven and earth, between God and man. And in some ways, these altars, well, one that we looked at in chapter 27, the bronze altar, and the one that we read about today in chapter 30, the gold altar, really tell the whole story. They, they tell the whole story because the bronze altar, what did it do? Well, it was there where they were sacrificed for the atonement for sin and for the needs of the uncleanness of God's people. But what was the gold altar for? Well, the gold altar makes it very clear at the end of our reading, no sacrifices are to be on this altar. Um, no, no drink offerings, no burnt offerings. What's to be on the gold altar? The gold altar matches the bronze altar. The bronze altar is out in the courtyard. The gold altar is in the holy place. They, they match one another. Both have horns. But on the gold altar, there's oil. And there's incense. And there's a smoke that arises with a sweet perfume before the presence of the Lord, symbolizing the prayers of God's people. The prayers of God's people making their way into the presence of the Lord. On the outside was the sign of the brazen altar, the, the bronze altar, that the people were separate from the Lord. They couldn't get in. And that atonement had to be made in order for them to have any communion. That lamb had to be sacrificed first before the incense could be offered in the holy place. Before the prayers of God's people could get into the presence of the Lord, blood for the shedding of the sin of the people had to be had to be done outside of the holy place. And all day long, the priest is walking between the atonement and the prayer offering and the incense, being sure that gospel of redemption is going out to the people, but prayers and intercessions are going up to the Lord. It's a dramatic display, isn't it? Of the fact that for us to live before the face of God... We must have our sins taken care of first. Before we can ever enjoy communion with the Lord, atonement must be made. Before we can be welcomed into the presence of the Lord, something and something's life has to be taken from it. Maybe I could put it this way. In order for our prayers to be received... Someone's prayer is not answered. Now, what do I mean by that? Wasn't well, it interesting as we pan forward from Exodus to the New Testament, maybe even well close but different to the place that we began our message in a garden, the Garden of Gethsemane? Yes, a different garden, but. A garden that I think harkens back and echoes something of that, that former garden, that first garden, the, the place where we enjoyed communion with God, wasn't it? It was in the Garden of Eden. It's also the place where we lost communion with God. What's the Garden of Gethsemane? Well, it's the beginning of the pathway for where Christ will ultimately lose His communion with the Father. And He knows it's coming. And it's the beginning of the path where Christ will forge reforge our communion with the Father. And isn't it there, Jesus, our high priest, who prays the prayer that doesn't get answered? Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. That's his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. What is this cup? Well, it's his priestly call. It's the whole of the priestly call. It's the tabernacle and all of the sacrifices. It's everything that the Old Testament pointed to. This cup, which is the wrath of God, that will be poured out for sin, the judgment of the Lord, that will be poured out on Christ on the cross. There, Jesus says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. And it's a prayer that his father didn't answer. Because the Father was answering a prayer that was prayed, well, from the beginning of the world. A prayer that the Lamb of God would indeed utter a few hours later on the cross. 
You remember when Jesus is, is hanging there and as he looks out at the throng of people gawking at his, well, let's just say it, at his naked body. Shamed. Full of embarrassment. With the grief of our own sin beginning to be levied upon him. The cup of wrath being poured out on him. Jesus prays the prayer that is answered. Father, forgive them. For they don't know what they do. Do you know Jesus today is praying that prayer for you? He's not ever stopped praying that prayer. He lives to make intercession for us, doesn't he? Praying the prayer, Father, forgive them. Bring to mind right now in your, your heart, bring it, bring it up, that sin from this week. You, you know what I'm talking about. Thought, word, deed. Do you feel the tinge of guilt? Do you feel, do you feel something of the shame? Now take that to the cross for a minute. That sin, the very one that's in your mind right now, not sin generally, that very sin that's in your mind right now, Jesus paid for if you're in Him on the cross. You bear it no more. It is completely atoned for. And he today, not on the cross, is praying the prayer from a risen and ascended place. Having overcome your sin, nailing it to the cross. Having defeated your greatest enemy, death. Having resurrected from the grave. Having received into the throne room of heaven. He prays on your behalf, Father forgive them. They don't know what it is that they do. And today in Christ, the fulfillment of his calling, what we see is that the gospel is true. That good news is the final word over you and me if you are in Christ Jesus. That sin's last word was on the cross 2,000 years ago. Oh, it may speak to you from within a voice of shame. It may take you down a path derailing you from the confidence that is yours in Christ. But today, in the dwelling place of the Lord, where Christ intercedes for us, today the Lord wants you to know you are forgiven. There is no condemnation for he or she who is in Christ Jesus. The high priest stands to make intercession for you. For you. And remarkably, from this amazing work of Christ, do you know what your position is? You will be astonished at this. You are washed. Do you remember the priests were washed? Do you remember that? Before they could ever put on those clothes? Well, you are washed, my friends. Washed in the blood of the Lamb. Washed through the waters of baptism. And do you remember that after they were washed, do you remember that they were dressed with the arraignment of a priestly robe and all of the accoutrements of their calling? Do you know your robe to this morning? Do you know your dawning? The beautiful robes of the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Fully clothed, your shame no more, your guilt removed. Do you remember that after that they were anointed with that special oil? Well, friends, I have to tell you, you're anointed with the presence of the Holy Spirit that has fallen from heaven upon the church that even today dwells within you. And the blood of the sacrifices of your sin and the recognition of your dedication 
and the special consecration as the people of God, that blood has been sprinkled over you. The last blood that is shed for the sins of the people of God, even Christ Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, that blood is upon you. And what that means, my friends, is that you're not just saved. Oh, yes, you are saved. Oh, you are priests of the living God. You are, as the church has declared, a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. You are a people who right now can go into the heavenly places in the midst of prayer. That can walk from the altar of Christ to the altar of the holy place. And burst right in upon the mercy seat. And every time you utter Christ's name and lift up a prayer, it's received into the presence of the Lord as a sweet-smelling aroma unto His nostrils. Astonishingly, we as the people of God, clothed, consecrated, called through the finished work of Christ into the work of being priests, Of the living God. Now let me tell you. Not only do you have that open pathway. You know what the priests did. What did they do? They served others. They served others. They took others to Christ. They took others to the Lord. They made known the truth through the ritual. You are a living ambassador as a priest of the living God in the world today. How will the world come to know unless someone tells them? And the Lord has determined to raise you up in this generation for just such a purpose. That others might join us here and be washed and be clothed and be called and be commissioned as priests of the living God. Are you ready to share the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are you ready to live out the calling of the priest? Are you ready to be, as it were, a mediator in the human spiritual sense, set apart through ministry, not in the divine sense of Jesus, the only mediator, but as one of his commissioned ones to be help used for the growth of the kingdom? You have all the equipping you need. His name is Christ and his spirit is yours. Let's together embrace this call. And let's walk by the light of his gospel. Father in heaven, I pray that you would teach us these truths in a way that doesn't leave us when we leave this room. In a way that sticks with us forever. Would you draw us into rich and abiding fellowship with you. And in that fellowship, into faithful service as priests of the living God, through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Lord, let the beauty and the glory of this message be forever glorious and beautiful in our sight until the whole world is the tabernacle and the dwelling place of the living God. And the whole world is full of his priests, his people, as far as the curse is found. Lord, hear this prayer and answer it in Jesus' name. Amen.